Hey everybody, James Intercasso from the Roundtable here. I just wanted to let you know about a little thing we're doing before we start this week's podcast. On Sunday, March 29th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, John Fisher is going to Dungeon Master, Roundtable regulars Allison Rossi, Rudy Basso, Alex Basso, and myself in a massive battle of the elements. We're going to be using the new D&D Unearthed Arcana battle system rules, and we're going to be playing characters using the Elemental Evil Player's Companion and the Unearthed Arcana Eberron races. This battle is going to be live streamed over Twitch at the Tome Show's Twitch channel. That's www.twitch.tv slash the underscore tome underscore show. That's Sunday, March 29th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. After we live stream the battle, we will release the audio as a podcast on the Tome Show's feed, so keep checking thetomeshow.com for that. You'll also be able to view the video even after the live stream over at the Tome Show's Twitch channel. Then we're going to do a roundtable podcast where we talk about all of the different elements, specifically the battle system, but also the Unearthed Arcana Eberron race that we're using of Warforged and the Elemental Evil Players Companion races. So look forward to all of that. You can get updates over at thetomeshow.com. All the information is linked there for you. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Gamer to Gamer. I'm your host, James Intercasso. This is a podcast where I interview pros in the gaming industry about their careers and the games they love to play. Today's guest is Rich Baker. Rich worked on Dungeons & Dragons at TSR and Wizards of the Coast. He helped create the third edition of D&D, the seventh edition of Gamma World, wrote a whole bunch of D&D novels, worked on a whole bunch of other games, and now he's one of the founders of Sasquatch Game Studio, the master storytellers and designers behind D&D's next adventure path, Elemental Evil. You better believe we talk Elemental Evil, Gamma World, and oh so much more. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other podcast, and then shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com. They're a brick-and-mortar game store that also exists online. They have any edition of any game, even out-of-print products. With Noble Knight, you can sell back your old gaming products you aren't using. Let's hear a quick word from them, and then we'll roll the interview with Rich. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday, Noble Knight is a brick-and-mortar game store. Support small businesses that also exists online. Open 24-7 on the web. They have D&D and other cool RPGs. Any edition, any game, even out-of-print products. And at a discounted price. That's out of control. Have a bunch of old game products collecting dust? Dangerous allergens. Noble Knight will buy the old stuff you aren't using anymore. Looking at you, Indiana Jones RPG. So go to noblenight.com and get buying and sell it. Take back your life and tell them the Tone Show sent you. All right, everybody, I am here with the man, the myth, the legend, 
Rich Baker, who is a level 50 NPC, if I have ever met one. Rich, how are you today? Hey, I'm real good. Glad to be here. Rich, thanks for joining us on Gamer to Gamer. Why don't you take us all the way back to the very first time you played a tabletop RPG? Give us the details. Were you the game master? Were you a player? And what game were you playing? Uh, Well, I started with RPGs uh, with the old Dungeons & Dragons basic set. Uh, It was the blue box that had the uh, picture of the the dragon and the wizard on the cover. Uh, This would have been, I think, about 1977. I would have been, uh, I think, in sixth grade. And, uh, you know, I figured out a couple things from from playing that, from from reading the rules to the effect of uh, there should be a whole party of characters. So, you know, I made up like six different characters on Crandall Ball on the one sheet of paper because I figured there should looks like about six would fit. <laughs> and, and and me and my friend started playing and we, we'd, each of us would run like six characters at a time, run a whole party, play together in the dungeon at the same time with one dungeon master. <laughs> And if your party ran into the party of the other guy who was playing and you were like higher level, you instantly slaughtered the other party, right? You turned a corner of the dungeon. <laughs> oh, those guys are fighting a green slime. Awesome. We run up and push them in, you know? <laughs> so we didn't really quite have the spirit of it right uh, exactly at first, but we, we started, you know, eventually figured it out and uh, wound up going on to play a whole bunch of first edition D&D. We ran through the whole uh, GDQ series and, and, you know, we're kind of off and running from there. Wow, I love the idea of a competitive dungeon crawl where everybody <laughs> controls a different party and they're all facing off and you know whoever kills all the other ones gets all the loot in the lair. So that's a really great idea. Uh, oh, and also loot, loot the other guys too, right? It's like, hey, that dude is carrying a plus four cloak of protection. I'm going to hunt him down and kill him. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. That's amazing. So that was how your gaming experience start. At what point then do you decide, ah, you know, I think I'd like to make a go of this as a career or do you fall into it? I, I, sort, of, I sort of backed into it. I mean, I always kind of aspired to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, uh, I, I went to, to uh, Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. I was in the Corps of Cadets uh, and Naval ROTC. So after I graduated college, uh, I was commissioned and uh, uh, served as an officer in the in the Navy for uh, three years on active duty. During that time, I started messing around with trying to write my first big fantasy epic. And even though I never sold that, it did kind of teach me that, hey, I think I could actually do this. I can write professionally. I can I can start a story and write and write and write and eventually come to, hey, I finished at the end. Because mm-hmm. uh, obviously, lots of people talk about, "Hey, I started. This, I had this great idea. I don't know how to start it, or I started. I wrote a little bit. Now I don't know if I can make myself write every day." And, and that exercise kind of taught me the discipline that you need to really, you know, uh, be a professional and actually turn something over. Yeah. Anyway, to 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 make a long story a little bit shorter, when I was getting out of the Navy, uh, decided to, to go to reserve status, and and okay, now I need to get a civilian job because I'm 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 not going to be doing this every day. I was sending resumes out just all over the place, right? I mean, I must have bombed 50 different resumes out to just everywhere. And as long as I was sending resumes to everywhere, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send one to TSR Incorporated uh, just for the pure hell of it. And to my astonishment, they responded. (laughs) And they sent me back this, uh, uh, they sent me back a a nice letter and said, hey, uh, we would like you to take a design test. And they they sent me a, a second edition complete Vikings handbook. One of the historical references, right? The the green the green leatherette ones. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it said write a two thousand word encounter, kind of themed around this material. 
And my opinion was like, awesome, I'm up a complete Vikings handbook of nothing else. <laughs> right? So so I sat down and I, I, I banged out a, a sample encounter, uh, you know, that kind of answered all the things they wanted to see answered in that design test, uh, mailed it back to them, and they, they liked it enough that they, uh, they wrote back and said, hey, we'd love to bring you up here for an interview. Uh, then, you know, six months went by before they actually got me up into Wisconsin for the interview. So I spent a few anxious months kind of wondering, man. Every every few weeks, I'd, I'd I'd bug them and say, "Hey, love to talk to you guys at some point. You know, <laughs> right. available at your convenience. Just let me know." And uh, sure enough, uh, in, in September of uh, 1991, uh, eventually got a chance. To, they flew me up to Wisconsin. I uh, rode down to Lake Geneva. I, uh, you know, met a bunch of the folks there, and uh, they sat me down and had me do another design test. I guess just to make sure that I was for reals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I guess it, I guess that turned out all right because I wound up starting at TSR in uh, in 1991. Wow. So I kind of really did back into it. I sent the resume out for the pure hell of it. I hadn't really done stuff like, you know, trying to meet people at conventions or trying to submit a bunch of stuff to Dragon. I just totally kind of came in over the transom. Wow. Wow, that's awesome. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about that first fantasy novel you wrote because now of course you are a very accomplished fantasy novelist uh you know you've you've written in r.a salvatore's war of the spider queen uh people might know the blades of the moon sea series that you've done the last mythal um you know you, you did some stuff in birthright which was also a campaign setting that you created so uh talk to me a little bit about that first book what was that about my my first novel the one that i never did actually manage to sell uh the title the title of it was uh, Kingslayer, and uh, ironically enough that you mentioned Birthright because uh, I did wind up using some elements of that novel in the Birthright setting. Oh, that's awesome. So even though I never managed to sell it, you know, I didn't throw it away. I, I kept it in a shoebox under my desk, and eventually, you know, a few years later, uh, when it came time to work on, on the Birthright setting, mm-hmm. I asked my, my, my co-writer, Colin McComb, I was like, hey, Colin. I got this fantasy world I did a little bit of work on. I'm never going to sell it, but I'd love to actually, you know, see a little bit of the stuff, you know, get some daylight. Do you mind if, if we make this one of the pieces of the birthright world? Mm-hmm. And, and Colin was very cool about it, said that sounds great. And so uh, if you are familiar with birthright, uh, the Anweer uh, Empire, that, sec- that, that portion, of the, uh, portion of the map, that is uh, very strong, very much drawn from my uh my novel kingslayer that i wrote while i was in the navy oh wow that's amazing that's really cool um you know and i know it's been a while since we've seen every anything from the birthright setting but uh <laughs> who knows who about knows? 15 years <laughs> you're there you're at tsr uh what are you doing when you when you first start with them uh the the very first thing i started on you know i showed up and you get a couple days of of you know kind of miscellaneous orientation and Mm-hmm. And a couple of the guys, Bill Connors and Dave Sutherland, take me out to lunch the first day. And you know, we go to the pizza in, in downtown Lake Geneva. Mm-hmm. And I, I asked him, I was like, guys, okay, I've got a curious because, I mean, keep in mind, I've really been sort of out of the hobby for a few years by the time I come in. What's the story with Gary Gygax? I thought he was a guy running this place. You know, <laughs> why isn't he around anymore? So I got the whole story of, you know, how, you know, the how TSR went through its various evolutions in the mid 80s and, mm-hmm. you know, got to be the company that I joined in 1991. The first thing that I was assigned to do after, you know, a few days of kind of just, you know, getting up to speed was to uh, work on a Spelljammer source book, The Rock of Brawl. You know, at that point, it's like, okay, hey, I'm here. I said I could do this. And 
you know, I sat down and, and, and banged out uh, Rock a Brawl and, you know, went pretty well. Uh, uh, the other fun thing at the time was, uh, in addition to kind of sitting down there and, and obviously kind of, you know, hiding in your cube all day long to write, uh, you would also uh, meet with various product teams. So I was assigned to the, the core D&D team uh, that Steve Winter was heading up at the time, and also the New Worlds team, which was headed up by Tim Brown. Uh, Tim Brown, of course, is one of the guys behind Dark Sun, him and Troy Denning. So the New Worlds group was kind of cool. That was the one I was really hot to get into because that was the one that had Spelljammer and Dark Sun and Ravenloft when Ravenloft was a, was a campaign line. Um, all that stuff was concentrated in the New Worlds group. And and so, you know, I kind of got, you know, the, the best of both worlds. I got a chance to work on uh, some of the core D&D adventures and, and material. And I also got a chance to uh, really dive in and sink my teeth into a couple of the D&D worlds that I really I really was excited about at the time. Oh yeah, that sounds amazing. That is a that is a plush uh, position for you to be in. Um, so you're there, you're working on D and D and everything. And then what happens when uh, TSR becomes merges with Wizards of the Coast? You know, Wizards buys TSR. Yeah, we knew from uh, you know from oh you know like like essentially like middle of '95 on, right? That that all is not well. Right. Yeah. Because. Uh, I had, you know, as I mentioned, I I started off by you know writing a novel during my time in the Navy. Uh, so I, every time a novel opportunity came up over in the book department at TSR, I would go down and bang on the door and say, "Hey, I'd love to get an opportunity to do some writing for you guys." In addition to you know doing my my day job game writing, I love to write some fiction too. And uh, you know, usually they kind of patted me on the head and sent me on my way, but. Uh, <laughs> Eventually, uh, the opportunity came up uh, for me to uh, contribute a birthright novel. And as somebody who was obviously pretty familiar with the setting um, <laughs> and you know anxious to, to, to make a splash on it, I finally got a, a crack at writing my, my first novel for publication. In that same time that, that things are, the wheels are slowly starting to kind of come off the cart at TSR, uh, I knocked out not one but two birthright novels. The uh, the first one was the Falcon and the Wolf, and the second one was the Shadowstone. Yes, literally the month that the Falcon and the Wolf was supposed to be printed and, and was supposed to show up was the month that TSR seized up so hard in cash that they could no longer afford to print new product. <laughs> so yeah, my my first novel, uh, you know, was, was totally hung up. You know, I finished up the second one that was hung up too, and ultimately when uh, Wizards of the Coast came in and 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 bought TSR, merged TSR, that you know, they did a very hard review of all the products that TSR had been doing at that time, at that, in that time frame. And one of the things that wound up on the cutting room floor was essentially the birthright novel line. They just had not been selling. They weren't doing well. So in one very bad day in the summer of 1996, uh, my first two novels, finished, completed, waiting to be published, uh, were canceled. Oh, jeez. So... <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. That's very disappointing. But we do eventually get those novels, right? Yeah. It, it, you know, years later, uh, Falcon and the Wolf was just made available um, essentially as as a free download. Um, and the Shadowstone, I was able to take that back and work on it like crazy and repurpose it as a Forgotten Realms novel, really just, just a couple of years later. So, yeah, that at least did come out and, and you know, I think was actually pretty good. Uh, Falcon and the Wolf, you know, was was okay. It was extremely birthrighty. So I, I, I think that, you know, the birthright fans appreciated it. And mm-hmm. 
Um, it's probably still floating around in the ether out there. If somebody's really curious, they can go find it. <laughs> but, but anyway, you know, going back to the idea of, uh, you know, when, when Wizards bought TSR, it was sort of a, uh, you know, obviously a, a tricky transition. Um, a lot of people in those months kind of leading up to that time when, when like I said, TSR was sinking, there, a lot of my colleagues were, it was, it was tough to be enthused about coming to work. Uh, I was very occupied personally with working like crazy on the alternative science fiction role-playing game. So, you know, for me, you know, I was, it was easiest for me to kind of put all those, you know, rumors and doom and gloom and, and wait for the ax to fall and just kind of shove it to the side and say, all right, that's all bad, but you know what I get to do today? I get to go in and put my head down and work on an awesome new science fiction game. <laughs> so, so those of us who are in the alternative team, we really kind of can't just get the pedal to the metal, just kept going all through those months to work hard to, you know, to, to build a, you know, build a good game because, you know, it just wouldn't sit right with me to come in to work every day and sit there in the cubicle and stare at the wall and say, is this the day that the axe falls? Right. You, <laughs> you got, you got to do something a little bit more positive than that. Yeah. And when you were there at Wizards of the Coast, you worked on some of the premier products, Complete Arcane, Tome of Battle, Red Hand of Doom, and one of my favorite products, the seventh edition of Gamma World. Can you <laughs> talk a little bit about uh, what it was like to work at Wizards and what it was like to work on Gamma World specifically with uh, Bruce Cordell? Well, you know, the, the transition actually moving from Wisconsin out to Seattle was uh, was not as bad as, as you might think, just because Wizards did extend uh, offers to um, like more than 50 people uh, to kind of come out and be the core of the D&D business uh, in Seattle. So it wasn't like I was making the move across the country just by myself. It was like, well, hey, you know, here's here's 50 of my coworkers, and many of these are my very good friends, and we're all kind of going out to try this together. So you know what? Let's do it. And then my mother-in-law still holds this against me because I told her at the time, it's like, you know, maybe I'll be in Seattle like three to five years. I can't imagine I'm, I'm going to be out there much longer than that. And, of course, you know, now it's going on you know, 18. <laughs> so, so I catch some grief about that still. But, <laughs> I imagine but, you But would, obviously, yeah. yes, uh, you know, it, shortly after we got out from, you know, TSR to, to the Seattle area, uh, it was to the coast. We became involved very quickly in the effort to uh, begin work on third edition D and D because we all recognized that second edition D and D had kind of run its course by by that point. The, there was not a lot of excitement about about D and D out there, largely because you know TSR had not published for a while. It was hard to kind of get that business back going, and and also the system was just kind of looking a little long in the tooth compared to other RPG systems that were appearing in the mid nineties. Um, and it was time for D&D to get an update. So uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of the uh, original team that dove in and started working like crazy on on developing 3rd edition. So um, myself, Monty Cook, Skip Williams, um, we spent eight months uh, really building the, the basics of, of the 3rd edition system. Jonathan uh, Tweet and Peter, Ack uh, Peter Atkinson participated in a lot of those uh, early discussions. And then... Uh, Jonathan Tweet joined the team a little bit later mm -hmm. um, and kind of really, you know, helped to bring it all together. But there's still many elements of third edition that that I can kind of point at and say, yeah, that's here because I did it. <laughs> so um, little things like, you know, every time in this great country of ours that a barbarian flies into a rage, uh -huh. that was me. Oh, wow. Everybody should <laughs> give you a nickel 
every time they rage. <laughs> that would be <laughs> every time a paladin smites evil. Oh man, those are and those are now like iconic parts of the class that yeah. um you know you know from all the recent fifth edition feedback survey and stuff that people have said the paladin must be able to smite that the barbarian must be able to rage that these are the iconic features <laughs> of these classes and you're the guy who made that happen <laughs> that's amazing yep uh, I, I came up with the guts of the feed system from third edition mm-hmm. yeah which might be a bit of a mixed blessing because at the point where the system had like three thousand feats maybe there was some paradox of choice issues going on there. Um, uh, well, the sorcerer class is another thing of mine that I contributed. Wow. Um, because I, I, you know, I looked at the player's handbook that we were planning, and I said, we have 50 pages of real estate devoted to supporting one class, mm-hmm. that being the wizard spells. You know, and, and it's like, man, if, if there was just some other way to get a little more value out of this real estate that so much of this book is compro- composed of, and that kind of led to the idea of the... You know, okay. Well, can we make a can we make a wizard light, a, a spontaneous caster that would you know work differently and and be able to use that material, you know, draw upon that same material and and just do something a little bit different with it. Man, I that is amazing because I love the sorcerer, one of my favorite favorite classes from third edition for sure. Played a lot of different sorcerers and everything. So thank you. For that, Rich, I really appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, man, that's amazing that those are... And what a great time it must have been to be kicking around ideas, all of those you and all those other big names, right, in the same room. Just so much fun, I bet. So, and then at what point uh, do you get tapped to uh, start making Gamma World? Uh, I feel you're going to come back around to that one. Uh, (laughs) Gamma World was... uh, Fairly late in the process, obviously. Uh, I want to say fourth edition had had, had uh, come out and was was a couple of years old at that point. And it wasn't anything uh, obviously that that I proposed or suggested to the schedule. It kind of came out of the blue that that literally, uh, you know, Bill Slavisek, you know, the the, uh, the guy I worked for for many years, you know, called Bruce Cordell and I into his office and said, "Hey, we're doing Gamma World. I want you guys to do it." I was a fan of Gamma World from way back in the day. I you know, the old first edition box set from, uh, gosh, 1980, 1981, whatever it was that, that came out. And, and Bruce Cordell, same thing. It, it kind of laughed because, you know, Bill uh, uh, Bill really emphasized to us. It's like, you know, this is a zany, goofy thing. I want you guys to kind of be over the top of it. And, <laughs> and Bruce and I kind of looked at each other after that meeting. We're like, I told him, Bruce, you know, I got to tell you, when I was a teenager, I kind of played it straight up. You know, I played it straight. I I didn't play it for the, for the gags. I yeah, I kind of was pretty serious about my talking badger people, <laughs> you know, and, and my mutated plants and, and my, you know, obs with the flying, you know, death rays, right? I mean, and, and Bruce kind of confessed the same thing. He's like, same, same, same here. He said, you know, we're, you know, we, we didn't play it for gags. We kind of played it very seriously. And, and I was like, well, okay, we, we have to kind of adjust your attitude about how we're approaching this. And of course, you know, at that point, you know, a 40 year old or somewhere around it, you know, it's like, okay. I look at this now, having played games for many, many years, and having grown up from a teenager that first saw Gamble World, I realized, oh, actually, this was intended to be pretty goofy. <laughs> so, so I need to kind of, you know, adopt a little bit of a lighter, uh, more, more comical tone to that, and that's fine because we wanted to, you know, make it something that would hold up pretty well on its own merits, but also be, a, a, you know, 
you know, writing humor deliberately is actually surprisingly hard. I've, I've, I've told people, you know, my, my philosophy on it is, um, you know, that about 25% of the gags you write on purpose, everybody will think is funny. <laughs> and about half of them, some people will think is funny and other people won't. And about 25% of them are only funny to you. <laughs> so and the problem is you have no idea which of those things you just did when you write the gag. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we wanted something. We knew that we had to do uh, a version of D&D that was, you know, anchored in mechanics that people already knew how to use, um, but a lot lighter that wouldn't have the same sort of crunchy character progressions, uh, would play a lot faster and looser at the table. And and that's where the idea of saying, let's not present character types. Let, let's let's get some of that randomness that people remember from the old gamma world. And let's build that into the uh, templates or archetypes or whatever they were. Mm-hmm. But that is, you would roll two of them, put them together, and then you just had to kind of have the fun, you know, sometimes irreconcilable task. <laughs> of, you know, well, it says here that I, you know, I'm an avian, I'm flying, and it also says here that I'm made out of rock. <laughs> that doesn't sound like that would work there. Well, how how the devil am I a, a flying rock? And you know, I struggled with that because I rolled that one randomly for a play test and I was into that, you know, that play test like an hour and a half in. It suddenly came to me. I, I just jumped up on the devil. I was like, I'm a gargoyle. I'm a gargoyle. That's what I am. That's a, I'm a flying rock. I'm a gargoyle. And that's when I realized we kind of had something with that whole idea of those random combinations. Mm-hmm. And we started really going back and revisiting how that game was put together to make sure that was a much stronger feature that people would be encouraged to roll those combinations all the time and and try to figure out what the devil they were from those two sometimes very different halves well and that is definitely a huge part of the fun of the game is that there's a lot of things that are sort of open to interpretation you know you can become a swarm of radioactive rats or if you get the rat swarm and the you know the felinoid form you're a swarm of cats it's it's amazing you know yeah, exactly. Or a swarm of rats who acts like a large cat, you know, whatever you want to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was part of the fun of it was it was so open ended and you didn't, you know, your your weapons could be anything. You just had weapon types. Was it two handed melee? Was it two handed light melee? Like that kind of thing. And then you could just go from there. Were you using a jagged stop sign to to hit people? Were you using a board with a nail through it? All that kind of stuff was so much fun and it was so open-ended and one of the things I thought that was great about it was it borrowed a lot of you know things obviously from the time fourth edition D&D was very popular and it borrowed some mechanics from fourth edition D&D which people had thought at the time was so stringent and so strict and it sort of I think showed a lot of people like oh you don't have to play by the rules so strictly in fourth edition you can really think outside the box and and go that way yeah uh, andy collins the developer uh who uh for the project he was uh he gets most of the credit for the uh for the weapon system mm-hmm. he's a guy who came up with the idea of you know gosh let's just not put specifics in there let's just encourage people to you know to to make up answers that work for him amazing well you guys are are geniuses for that you are one of the founders of Sasquatch Game Studio, and you have a, a couple of other guys working with you there. Uh, former uh, colleagues of mine from Wizards of the Coast, uh, uh, Dave Noonan and Steve Schubert. 
Yes. Yeah. Who are guys whose names are obviously on a lot of other D&D products too. So you guys are, are clearly a powerhouse game studio. And uh, what is it that you guys are, are currently cooking up right now? Well, uh, uh, just next month um, should see the release of the Elemental Evil Adventure, uh, Princes of the Apocalypse. Uh, we worked on that as a design studio in, in partnership with Wizards of the Coast. Uh, got a chance to kind of bring in and, and work with a number of, of uh, freelancers and, and, and artists that, uh, uh, you know, I think we all did a pretty bang up job. Um, but guys like uh, uh, Rob Schwalb and Steve Townsend, um, Ed Greenwood, a uh, number of very talented artists, uh, you know, were able to uh, put together, I think, a, a fantastic adventure. Um, and the other thing that happens uh, to be coming out next month, um, and that was, this is not the plan. This was supposed to come out a little while ago, but thanks to uh, uh, congestion in the port of Long Beach, uh, the, the whole uh, uh, shipping slowdown that happened for a few months here this fall, uh, just next month, our Primeval Fool campaign setting book should be hitting uh, the retail shelves and the finer uh, game stores in the area, around the country, I hope, anyway. and. Uh, so uh, kind of by accident, we managed to have it so that uh, two gigantic releases happen uh, just about the same time. Uh, the Elemental Evil Project is for the new edition of D&D, the you know, fifth edition, as everyone calls it. The uh, Primeval Thule we built to be a multi-platform setting um, that works. Uh, we have versions available for uh, fourth edition D&D, um, the Pathfinder role-playing game, and the 13th Age role-playing game. A uh, number of different uh, versions of that available, and and in fact, we might even get around to doing a Savage Worlds uh, version of that too sooner or later, just as soon as we can free up the bandwidth, really. So we're definitely going to touch on Primeval Thule as well. But what can you tell us about Princes of the Apocalypse right now? Um, you know, we know it's a big super adventure that takes place in the Forgotten Realms brings your characters from level one through 15. Is there anything uh, you, you can tell us anything about the story to, uh, to entice us a little bit? I, uh, this is where I have to be a little bit guarded in what I say, because uh, of course. Uh, yes. wizards really wants me to be very careful about not, <laughs> about not giving out too many spoilers. Of on course. The, 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 the fun challenge uh, for us when we first got into our design discussions with, with wizards of the coast and they you know, brought us in and explained what they wanted to do. Is uh, uh, Steve and Dave and I kind of uh, you know left that meeting and looked at each other and, and said, "Man, I really feel like we have a bit of a chocolate and the peanut butter kind of problem here." They want to set this, you know. Wizards was you know wanted to make sure that they used for, uh, Forgotten Realms. Elemental Evil, of course, has always been very closely associated with the Greyhawk setting, mm. and, and in fact, trying to figure out you know how to make the Elemental Evil story feel uh, good and Realmsian. I worked on a ton of Forgotten Realms stuff in 3rd edition and 4th edition. Um, I wrote a ton of Realms novels. Yeah, I got a pretty good idea of the Realms as a setting. Yeah, you know, I, I was scratching my head for a bit about, man, uh, you know, how are the fans going to react to this? What are people going to say when they, they see that we're thinking about you know, crossing the streams here? I will say that uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast came up with, I feel, a, a really good location for where to kind of anchor the, the adventure. Uh, it takes place in the north um, in a region called the Summer Hills, um, which is sort of between a little bit north of Waterdeep and uh, uh, south of Silvery Moon. So it's kind of one of the uh, one of the fun things about working in the realms is you realize the realms is gigantic, <laughs> right? When you really look at the the space involved, 
it is colossal. So, you know, when you go north of Waterdeep, you can go about 500 miles before you, anything else of significance. <laughs> it, it is a gigantic, you know, world that, that Ed Greenwood built. But uh, we found a great spot to, you know, uh, Wizards just had a great spot to anchor the adventure. We looked at it. We found some some really interesting bits of very old game lore that kind of pointed towards the idea of of having, you know, a sort of ancient forgotten threat that that nobody really is aware of anymore. And being able to kind of draw that draw that out and pretty, you know, establish some good ties between, you know, honest to gosh, Forgotten Realms world lore and, you know, a big new story like, hey, uh, there's a there's four elemental prophets and they're they're planning <laughs> to destroy the world or at least do their best. Um, and uh, I I think we I think we managed to pull it off. I think it turns out pretty well. I'm I'm actually really proud of the adventure. I feel I feel that the adventure is a you know it, it consists of you know gosh you know literally like a dozen different small dungeons and and settings that all kind of feathering together plus lots of side tracks and lots of a good mix of, uh, you know, uh, of, of narrative that that uh, kind of sets you on your way and, and, and gives you reason to go up against the cult. But it's also uh, uh, super, super sandboxy, which I think is always kind of fun. It, it really encourages the player to, to say, here's the problem, here's the situation. You decide how you're going to go deal with it, and you decide where to start and which, uh, which uh, strings you want to start pulling on to begin to unravel this knot. Oh man, and that that is the kind of adventure that I love to see and it's nice to see a a return to that style. You know, it seems like Wizards is is pushing the sandbox a little bit more than they have in the recent past. And what I love kind of about this Elemental Evil storyline specifically is I think it helps reestablish the idea of a multiverse with many material planes because this could be the same elemental evil threat that we saw in Greyhawk right now it's just for come to Forgotten Realms and uh, I think it sort of uh, it serves as a bridge to okay well maybe we can open up some other universes after this as well we're not we're not just limited to Forgotten Realms we can go all over the place I really can't wait to get my hands on this product and and check it out i love elemental beings and all that kind of thing so and today saw the release of a free supplement to go along with the adventure with a bunch of new races and spells to go with this uh elemental evil storyline that i has everybody talking everybody is really excited about (laughs) this supplement so if the supplement's any indication of what's to come uh i i think Good stuff is is down the pike for all of us. Yeah, we we were uh, uh, we uh, as in Sasquatch and our and our our little cadre of freelancers, we knocked out most of what's in that little uh, uh, free PDF. Uh, so, for example, I I I I had a chance to work on the Surf Neblin, which is kind of cool, right? Getting a chance to take a uh, a D and D standard like the Deep Gnomes and and write the the first iteration of them that appears in the you know the newest edition. It's always fun because you kind of get to take a step back and say, "All right, here's here's what I think they're about. Here's what I think the the kernel of what they need to do is. Uh, here's how I think that would work on the, under the new the new mechanics." So I have one final question, which you can feel free to not answer, uh, yeah. uh, and I only need a a vague yes or no. But are we going to see any? original high level monsters that we might be facing off uh, that are not in the monster manual you asked the question pretty vaguely so i guess i can i can answer pretty vaguely uh 
uh, under the constraints you just described, I think, uh, yes, there's, there's definitely some high-level stuff that did not appear in the Monster Manual Excellent. that appears in that book. Excellent. I'm always on the lookout for good new high-level baddies. So that's good to know. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Primeval Thule. Uh, it's great. you know it's a great campaign setting. Uh, you know there's already a lot of uh, chatter about it online and everything. Uh, what can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, you know, like like describe the campaign setting for me, if you will. Well, the the, the basic idea. This is this is what we kind of call the the elevator pitch, right? You know, the old thing. If you get into an elevator with a movie exec and you're going to describe the, what your project is before you get to the next floor. Primeval Thule is Conan versus Cthulhu. Oh, I'm so it, in. It basically takes uh, a lot of the old sword and sorcery pulp stories uh, from, from the thirties uh, and kind of really says, this is the, the place where, uh, Robert Howard and H.P. Lovecraft uh, came the closest in, in, in sharing a world uh, was the idea that uh, Howard played all the time with the idea that his Atlantean age or his Hyborian age was in some ways the history of the world that Lovecraft was writing about in setting his modern day stories. There are certainly uh, many, many uh, Cthulhu-esque elements in the original Howard stories uh, for, for Conan. Um, those two guys actually knew each other pretty well. They corresponded all the time. They traded, traded story, you know, traded, you know, they were, I don't know if they met face to face, but they were, they were definitely, uh, good friends and, and very familiar with each other's work. So based on that, 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 that premise of, Hey, let's look at an ancient age of the earth in which kind of everything that was true about, you know, forgotten kingdoms now buried under ice, you know, evils that have been slumbering upon the earth for, you know, since ages uncounted. Let's say that that is actually what the world is like, and let's pick a spot that is now kind of vanished and build that setting. Um, that's where Thule comes from. Um, another big inspiration would be, for example, uh, Clark Ashton Smith's Hyperborea. So uh, Thule, very specifically, and this is this is one of our little secrets of the setting. The map of Thule is actually Greenland without the ice. Greenland's huge, right? I mean, it's it's colossal. It's 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 like two thousand miles from end to end, right? It is. Plenty big enough to be home to a a a large sprawling D and D campaign. We actually found um, uh, maps of what the topography of Greenland would be like, and it turns out in the middle of Greenland, uh, the ground level is substantially lower than sea level, uh, probably because of the weight of the ice cap on it. But that gave us the idea of, oh, okay, well, clearly there would be an inland sea there, you know, sort of like the Caspian or something, right, right in the middle of uh, of Thule, and uh, yeah, we just kind of yeah had fun from there. Uh, what is a typical day for you like when you are at uh, you know working on games with all your friends? Um, well, I actually work out of my home uh, uh, pretty much all the time right now, <laughs> uh, which yeah, you know, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll essentially fire up the computer and 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 I try to split it up so that I work on a couple different projects during the day because if I if I really you know, just totally lock on one thing and work on that exclusively all day long, especially kind of working, uh, you know, by myself most of the time that you can get a little squirrely that way. Right. So, yeah. Uh, uh, like, uh, for example, just last week I was splitting time between, uh, uh, working on dressing up fourth edition conversions 
of some of the PDF adventures we're going to be giving away for our Primeval Thule Kickstarter uh, rewards. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we had submissions that uh, that were done in Pathfinder uh, from the guys at Legendary Games and the guys uh, at Meliorvia, and those are great. But we also wanted to make sure that because Primeval Thule supports uh, Pathfinder and Thirteenth Age and Fourth Edition, we wanted to make sure that there were versions of those adventures for the guys who who wanted Thirteenth Age Thule, for example. I spent you know about half my days uh, just you know uh, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, taking those Pathfinder adventures and creating uh, fourth edition, you know, versions of them. Then I spent the other half of my time working on new fiction. Uh, I'm working on a a, a new science uh, science fiction story, which I, I hope actually becomes a series of science fiction stories, uh, which is sort of a military themed science fiction, maybe a little bit like uh, David Weber's Honor Harrington stories. So yeah, I'm 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 you know half the day I'm spending in in uh, you know, Greenland 25,000 years ago, on the other half of the day, I'm, I'm talking about the uh, rail guns and, and warp drives and, and intergalactic politics of, you know, <laughs> of the far future. So in the limited free time you have, uh, because it sounds like you are a very busy person, uh, what sort of games are you playing? What kind of role-playing games? What kind of board games? That sort of thing. What do you like to gather around and, and play at the table with your friends? Well, uh, the Sasquatches, uh, me, Dave, and Steve, um, we are uh, we are part of a regular uh, Thursday night game group, and uh, we are actually right now uh, uh, playing three point five D and D on a, a little homebrew campaign that uh, uh, Steve Schubert kicked up. That, that's our that's our regular RPG play. <laughs> uh, is it the three of you? Are there other players? And uh, did they also help create third edition D and D? No, it's the uh, uh, the three of us are the pros at the table, and the uh, uh, the other uh, the other three guys are college buddies of, of Steve's, basically. Uh, yeah, it must be intimidating for them to to play at the table with the people who made the game. Oh no, they they let us hear it. Trust me. <laughs> but uh, we we just finished uh, uh, playing uh, playing Elemental Evil like crazy because obviously we were kind of play testing it ourselves as we were going along and doing the work on it. Of course, um, yeah. And, and so now having wrapped that up, it's like, hey, let's let's actually you know give ourselves a break and and not play something we're working on at the same time. And so that's why we're we're just playing around with a little homebrew of of Steve's right now. Nice. Um, when awesome. when we can't get a quorum together for uh, you know for uh, basically a D and D game, uh, some of our favorite board games, um, and we're big fans of Lords of Waterdeep. It's Who a, is it? It's a really solid game. <laughs> it's a great game. <laughs> uh, we played a bunch of uh, uh, the game Legendary. It's a, uh, oh, a deck yeah. building game. Marvel uh, uh, Marvel deck building game. Really yes. fun. Really fun. Yep, we, we we have played the played the heck out of that. Uh, still haven't beat Galactus. That bugs us, but oh, he's tough. <laughs> <clears throat> um, every now and then, uh, uh, one of my one of the my older favorites that I love is uh, I have one called Mission Red Planet uh, from uh, Asmodee Games, uh, which is a great Euro game that's got a sort of steampunk uh, Mars colonization theme to it, and. It's just a great, elegant little game. We'd like to break that out. We had thought we were going to kickstart this in a month or two, but I think we're going to wind up pushing this back till the fall. I put together a a uh, board game 
uh, sort of a worker placement game, sort of semi-Euro uh, theme um, called Ultimate Scheme. And Ultimate Scheme, the basic premise is that uh, you are a master villain or a sinister organization, huh. and uh, you are competing to uh, execute various nefarious schemes all around the world, which might include things like uh, destroy the Bank of England, control the weather, start a dance craze, <laughs> you know, zombies, you know, just all sorts of crazy things in your organizations that, are, you know, you might be uh, ninjas or, or, you know, a group like, uh, uh, like goofy iterations on uh, Spectre or Chaos or it's got a bit of a retro 60s vibe to it in a lot of ways. And uh, it's one that we were pretty close to being able to, to kickstart, but uh, just in terms of the, of the timing, because that's a game we would get printed in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, we looked at it and said, well, shoot, we, we can't get this done before Gen Con. There's no point trying to rush it. Let's take our time, take another couple of months, make sure we're really happy with it. And then we'll bring it out and, and offer it to people as far as, hey, this is what we're, this is what we're doing next. Where can people find you? Where can they go to learn more about all the, the wonderful things that you're talking about? Uh, well, we, we have a, a website, which is simply uh, all one word, sasquatchgamestudio.com. We need to actually do a little bit of updating on the website, so it, it might be a little bit messy at the moment. I'm on Facebook, and I accept uh, invites from just about anybody who isn't a freak. <laughs> uh, so if you want to follow me on Facebook, that's easy enough to do. Uh, and I've also started doing something kind of interesting with uh, my my personal blog. I just started on a very ambitious project that I call 28 Adventures. I realized that over the course of my career, I have published uh, 28 Adventures. And and so I said, you know what I'm going to do for the next six months, uh, once a week, I'm going to just kind of examine them in chronological order. What was I like to work on it? What was I thinking about? What was I trying to do? What were some of the interesting hangups or stories that came out of that particular effort? And uh, basically kind of start telling some stories that, you know, people who are interested in some of the old material, you know, might enjoy. So just uh, this morning, uh, I posted the first one, uh, which talked about the Dark Sun Adventure Dragon's Crown. My, my blog is, uh, uh, is titled Atomic Dragon Battleship. <laughs> because, you know, when you name a blog, you name it any darn thing you like. <laughs> well, and that is the most epic name for a blog I have certainly ever heard. Uh, and we will definitely link to that. I can't wait to go start read that series. Um, because I'm sure for people who play adventures, people who run adventures, people who are interested in designing, this is a great series to check out. So, um, you know, I will definitely check it out there. And if people want to find out more about all of the wonderful things you've mentioned, it's all linked at thetomeshow.com for them. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, for being on the show today, Rich. Uh, and uh, you are welcome back anytime. Uh, you know, happy to be here. People, if you have a question or comment about the show, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can go to The Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. That's the fifth edition world I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me, and it's full of free resources for your fifth edition D&D games. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Rich for being on the show. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner and Sam Dillon. 
Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Remember, never give up. Life is a game. Eventually, you gotta roll a 20. <laughs>